I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. We start nice and early and the sun is not really risen, but you come in here and you're, you're greeted by wonderful, you know, smiling faces of all these lovely flowering plants. The trees are still bare, plants are still waking up. To come in here and see plants that are in their absolute full vibrancy is a really lovely, lovely thing to do every, every day. That's Alex Hankey talking from behind the scenes of the Alpine Display House at RHS Garden Wisley. And I couldn't have said it better myself. There's something spectacular, soul-stirring, about seeing the early blooms at this time of year. Snowdrops and the early daffodils offering the season's first blasts of floral colour. And today we'll be taking a behind-the-scenes look at the way spring is fighting its way into the picture at Wisley. We'll be getting a masterclass on pruning wisteria with none other than curator Matt Pottage. And finally, we're diving into the life and work of the eccentric and influential horticulturalist Ellen Wilmot and exploring a theory for why she may have missed her Victoria Medal of Honour ceremony. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. Let's jump right back in with Alex Hankey at Wisley's Alpine Display House to get an inside look at their current top performers. So we're currently standing in the Alpine Display House. There are two display houses at Wisley and we are in the display house that showcases potted specimens. They are changed on a daily basis, every morning, the horticulturalists in the Alpine team select what is looking good behind the scenes. And this is essentially to try and make the display look as, as fresh and pretty much as perfect as we can make it look like for every visitor that walks through the doors of the, the display house every morning. The plants inside the Alpine display house are, are laid out in a raised bed, a brick-built bed that is filled with sand. The sand inside the beds does go right the way to the floor, so it's almost a, a metre depth of sand. The main reason for the benefit for the actual plants growing in the sand is that the pots we use are terracotta, so that they are clay. They are porous, it's a natural material, and, and it breathes just like our skin does. So you'll notice if, if a terracotta pot is not plunged in sand, you can really run the risk of a plant drying out really quickly because there's that air exchange, water exchange 
And the beauty of them being in the sand is if you don't want to water the actual pot, if you're worried about overwatering the plant, because many of these plants are quite water sensitive, you can water the sand around the terracotta pot. That will actually help the pot retain moisture without actually directly watering the pot itself. So it's a very good way of keeping these plants moisture regulated. Currently, we're in one of our most floristic periods of the uh, Alpine calendar. We have a, an amazing collection here at Wisley featuring plants from all over the globe. And we're also entering our very heavy bulb flowering season as well. So we have plants such as muscari, hyacinths, and namely at the moment, dwarf narcissus. So the narcissus romuii, narcissus bulbacodium, which is commonly known as the hoop petticoat daffodil. They're beautiful little yellow trumpets singing out on this slightly drizzly day here at Wisley. So let me just take you on a little tour around the house and we'll, we'll just stop over at some of the, the bulbs that are looking really good at the moment. And my absolute favorite is currently Muscari macrocarpum. So by its name, it means large fruiting, but it's not the fruits that it's really grown for. It's this amazing yellow trumpeted flower. And Muscari is usually associated with being purple or blue. It's the grape hyacinth by its common name. But this one is hugely, you know, it's, it's a massive version of its relatives. And the most unique thing about it is the flowers actually smell like banana foam sweets. So if, if you're to dip your nose in, you smell like a sweet shop. And I'm looking now at Lacanalia aloides var quadricolor. This is a very incredible bloom. The trumpets are fiery reddish yellow with a purple tip. It's just something that is otherworldly in Britain at this time. It looks exactly like a sunset and the leaves, not particularly on this individual, but they can be slightly speckled as well. So you get like a slight purple, purple speckling on the leaves. We just move over towards a lovely bowl of Narcissus romuii. This is one of the dwarf trumpet daffodils. Dwarf trumpet daffodils come in a slight cyclical fashion every year. Romuii basically kick the season off. They flower from, well, certainly with us, they've been flowering with us from Christmas and they're just about hitting their peak now. But these will be superseded by Narcissus bulbacodium, which is the true hoop petticoat daffodil. They look very much like a wild form of a daffodil. The real, you know, amazing thing about them is they have such an enlarged trumpet, it just looks like a musical instrument. And the, the trumpet is known as a corolla tube. The corolla tube is really, it's really exaggerated in these flowers. And the anthers and the stigma do stick out like little fireworks. So I mentioned earlier that we have a huge alpine collection many, many thousand pots within the department. So I'll take you just behind the scenes to some of our varying glass houses to talk about how we care for these plants before they come into, into this display house. We've migrated away from the display house, the publicly accessible display house to behind the scenes. It is a large polytunnel. We can open the roof. 
allowing the hot air to escape. But also at this time of year, it means that the plants are sheltered beautifully under a giant umbrella. Similar to the, the display house, the plants are, are all grown in terracotta pots. They are plunged into the sand. There's a lot of plants currently in here that are spring flowering. So they are slowly you know, continuing to wake up to grow in some cases. A lot of plants grown in this protected environment do bloom usually slightly earlier than they would do in the open ground, just because the temperature has probably been slightly warmer in the container for a little bit longer. So don't be worried if your plants at home are not showing the same levels of growth, always about one or two weeks ahead in, in a protected environment. So a plant that will be pretty soon to arrive on, on the alpine scene will be Iris reticulata. So these are commonly known as reticular irises. They are the earliest flowering iris. So they, they are just starting, we're looking at a pot now where the pointed flower bud and leaf buds are poking through the grit that we use to top dress these pots. We have cultivars such as, as Frozen Planet. As, as it describes, it is quite icy looking. It is blue, it's white. And we also have one cultivar, Gordon, which is a really nice purple. They are just incredible flowers. I mean, iris flowers are one of the most special in the plant family. They're just incredible in the way they are structured. And, and to see these coming through again this early on in the season is really, really nice. Again, also we're, we're next to the crocus collection here as well. We have a really good spring and autumn flowering crocus collection here at Wisley and the spring flowers are just starting to wake up and really nicely we're looking at a plant here. It's the cultivar is Kiss of Spring. So that's really quite a cute name, very apt for this time of year. And it's just, just starting to, to poke through. So again, a lot of the spring flowering crocus will emerge from February onwards. So a beautiful arrays of whites, purples and yellows in the spring flowering crocus. So they will be in the display house in quite large numbers too. Coming into work every morning is an absolute joy when you get to work in a glass house like this. It's very, very dark in the mornings. We, we start nice and early and the sun is not really risen, but you, you come in here and you're, you're greeted by wonderful, you know, smiling faces of all these lovely flowering plants. The trees are still, are still bare, plants are still waking up. To come in here and see plants that are in their absolute full vibrancy is a really lovely, lovely thing to do every, every day. Thanks there to Alex. You can find information on how to visit Wisley and see these magnificent flowers for yourself in our show notes. I love early spring flowers, especially the small ones, and I grow lots of snowdrops, which do quite well in my garden. But the thing I love most is something that Alex mentioned. It's the grape hyacinth. The grape hyacinth was the thing that I grew first when I was about age seven and just starting gardening. And I still got quite a lot in the garden. There's one particular patch that just spreads and spreads and grape hyacinths are what we call very willing. I don't find them invasive, so I'm very pleased that they spread and produce a lovely, reliable carpet of blue every spring. And while it's still early days, not much is in bloom yet, there's plenty to do to ensure that our future flowers look their absolute best. And if you're wondering, yes, it's still prime pruning time for things like wisteria. 
And if you have any doubts about how best to go about it, we've got you covered. Here's Matt Pottage, RHS Garden Wisdom Curator and all-around Wisteria fanatic with a pruning masterclass. So we're standing just outside the wall gardens here at Wisley and we are actually by one of the wisterias that's trained up a post. So it's one of our freestanding wisterias. It's been almost platted up this old wooden post. The post is almost rotting and the actual wisteria is quite thick and chunky. So they do look like little freestanding wisteria trees. So at Wisley, we're really proud of our showcase of wisteria. We have them on some obelisks, we train them on walls, we let them run freely up trees, we have them as large standards, we have them as half standards. So yeah, wherever there's an opportunity, we tend to have a wisteria and we absolutely rejoice in the diversity and the colour and the scent. And let's face it, who doesn't love a wisteria in, uh, in late April? And you know what, they're actually, they're showing good climate resilience. They don't mind hot, dry summers. If anything, it helps ripen the wood. And they're cold hardy. So, you know, no matter what extreme events the winter months throw at us, the wisteria are not something we need to worry about. Their biggest enemy from the weather is late spring frosts, and that does and can damage them a bit. But it, you know, it doesn't finish the plant off. It just knocks off some of the flowers. So this time of year, in you know, what are we, mid-February, the wisterias are completely naked, they are deciduous plants, but it's a very useful time to see the structure of them, look at the buds, work out the flowering buds, and do that all-important winter prune. So just to take a step back, really, people at home are thinking, why do we even need to prune wisteria? So obviously in the wild, nobody does. They are left to scramble up trees. And if you go to Oakwood at Wisley, you see them growing 80 foot into the tops of oak trees. And that's what they would do naturally. But on a wall or an obelisk or in your regular garden, we do need to prune them because they are simply so vigorous. They are capable of growing to enormous sizes. So we want to keep them compact and we want the flowers at a level where we can see them and smell them. And, you know, we don't necessarily want all the flowers way above our heads. So the pruning comes in for two reasons, really, to manage the size and the scale of it, but also to help the creation and the formation of the flower buds and have them at a level where we can enjoy them. So wisterias are pruned in both the summer and the winter. And the winter prune is really the more important one where you can exactly see what you're doing and take the extension growth back to a series of buds which then start to form flower buds or they might already exist and we'll talk about that in a moment. So the summer prune is normally more of just a convenience thing when it's sending out these enormous great searcher shoots we call them they go off searching for new places to climb new places to seek but generally they're in your face they're in the way they're quite unwieldy so you just want to hit them back in the summer and that's not such a worry so we generally say shorten them by half you can't really go wrong with the summer prune but in the winter time then it is important the winter time prune is not just a give it a hack back you do need to go in with a bit of a, a knowledge of what you're doing so to give a bit of a crash course really, so the first thing to look at when you're thinking well, how do I begin this task, start at the bottom, start at the base of the plant because often the plants are grafted. So it's like, you know, a flowering cherry or an apple or a pear tree, they're grafted onto a rootstock. So sometimes you see these sprawling shoots growing from the base of the plant, cut those off, make sure you know exactly what you're looking at. 
Then go in for dead, diseased, broken, badly placed, so things are crossing or rubbing. So just take out any of those housekeeping jobs, if you like. And then when you're at that point, then you can start to look at the structure and what we're actually going to prune off to help the flowering and manage the size of the plant. Now, before you actually take anything off, you can use some of the current season's shoots, so these long, whippy, flexible shoots, to tie in if you need more coverage, say, on the wall or the obelisk. So there's no point pruning off everything and then thinking, well, that part of the wall is still quite bare. So you can use some of those flexible younger growths to tie in and create structure if you want more coverage from the plant. And then after that point, then is the time to start going in and doing the actual pruning work. So current season's growth or last summer's growth, because obviously this grew last summer and we're now in February, they're longer, they're whippier and they were shortened back in the summer. You can see these were literally cut in half. And what you see when you trace back the current season's growth is the buds at the base of that, they will be your flower buds. But further out, they won't be flowers. These will just be foliage buds. And what we want to do is count, it doesn't need to be an exact science, but we normally say two to three buds back from the base of that new growth. And then we prune just above that bud. So those basal buds that you're leaving behind are going to start forming the flowering knuckles. And on, like I said, on very old plants, and if you go to an old country house or you see an older plant in a garden, these flowering knuckles often look quite gnarly and quite hand-like, and those will be much heavier in the flower buds. And that starts to build up from years and years of this type of pruning. And that is essentially it. So if you can get your mindset into tracing back last year's growth, more or less to two to three buds, dead, damaged, disease, crossing, broken, and any rootstock suckers off, you're there. So the only time when this might vary is if you have a very, very old plant, sometimes they become to the point where they just flower very heavily, which is obviously a good thing, but they don't put out much extension growth. And you might find you need to reduce it in size, or maybe you're worried that it's just old and it's going to flower itself to death. And a very, very mature plant can flower heavily and it can start to lose its ability to produce much vegetative growth. So some of those heavier flowering spares, you can do a light thin on them. So maybe take 10 to 20% of those out, just give them a bit of a thin. But like I said before, wisterias are so vigorous, normally you're getting loads of extension growth, even from very old plants. So now is the perfect time to get out there and look at your wisterias. It's so much easier, like I say, than the summer prune because there's no leaves. You can see exactly what you're doing. And, you know, it, there's something very cathartic and satisfying about pruning something well, pruning it beautifully and knowing that you're going to be looking forward to, uh, to good flowers. That was Matt Pottage. Matt recorded a brilliant wisteria video that we've included in the show notes if you'd like to take a deeper look at this most magnificent of climbers. And finally, we're turning back the clock to the late 1800s when the first Victoria Medals of Honour, a very prestigious RHS award, were doled out, and we're looking at exactly why Ellen Wilmot snubbed the reception ceremony. 
So without further ado, here's Dr Suzanne Moss, the Director of Learning and Public Engagement at the RHS, who's been researching the LGBTQ plus history of horticulturalists throughout the UK with the story. I think that garden history is so fascinating to me because we learn about it in a very regimented and a very standard manner and there's a way that garden history is taught and we always learn about the garden designers like Capability Brown and Humphrey Repton and William Kent. We learn about plant hunters like David Douglas, Reginald Farrow, George Forrest and all of them are men and I think the more you look into garden history the more you find a very diverse group of people who are doing all sorts of things and gardens and plants now and in the past have kind of transcended that class, colour, race, nationality, sex, gender identity, socio-economic status and it's just, it really has brought people together but all we see in that historical record is men usually and I was really interested to kind of look behind that and see what diversity made gardens as we see them today. One of the things I have been researching is the history of LGBTQ people in gardens and horticulture. It's just acknowledging that it happened, I think, and it's so hard to tell those histories because of the the evidence that we don't have and the evidence that we can't have because for so many years this was it was illegal or it wasn't considered appropriate in polite society. So whilst it might have happened, we don't see it in the historical record. So we have to dig a little deeper. I, I suppose the reason that it's important, the reason that it captivates me is that I'm a queer woman and I'm into gardens and I'm into science. So I was quite interested to see how my life might have gone then and how that might have sort of shaped up for me. And I think the more we do that, the more we see ourselves represented. And I think queer people now have not always seen that in the past. So it's been quite difficult sometimes for queer people in many different sectors, horticulture included, because... They don't see themselves told in those stories. So the more we can acknowledge it, the more it just gives us a truer picture of the actual diversity of the, the, the people that have shaped where we are today. So today I thought we'd have a chat about Ellen Wilmot, who is someone who has been a real surprise to me. Her name has been around for a very long time in, in horticulture and you see her name everywhere and yet I knew nothing about her. And when I did find out about her recently, it was a revelation. Ellen Wilmot was an absolutely fascinating lady. She lived in the 19th and 20th centuries. She was the daughter of a self-made couple and they lived at Worley Place in Essex, which was a very big estate. And eventually, Ellen made this into an incredible plantsman's paradise. Ellen was incredibly into plants. She was, I think you would probably say that she was obsessed by them. She had her garden, which she bought plants for constantly from all the way around the country, all the way around the globe. People sent her plants she spent much of her life writing a work on roses, which was one of her particular passions. She loved daffodils. She had an incredible rock garden. Um, by the end of her life, she was 
a real stalwart in the horticultural industry. So she ran the garden at Wally Place, but she also financed expeditions. She bred prize-winning plant cultivars. She was central to the establishment of Wisley as an RHS garden, and she was one of the first trustees. She judged at Chelsea Flower Show. She was on an advisory committee at Hampton Court. She really was one of the big guns in horticulture at that time, despite having the obvious disadvantage of being a woman. There are loads of plants named for Ellen Wilmot because she bred so many. But uh, one of the ones that we are most familiar with is Eryngium Miss Wilmot's Ghost. And that is so named because it was said that she would keep seeds of it in her pocket. And um, it's a biennial, so it seeds fairly regularly. It was said she carried seeds in her pocket and scattered them in gardens where she felt that it would um, it would enhance the planting. So whether or not that's true, no one is quite sure, but it does feel like something that she may have done because she was considered to be quite brash, quite opinionated and, and a very strong woman. Although I think at that time it didn't take much to be seen as a difficult woman, really. So I came across Ellen Wilmot in an amazing book called Miss Wilmot's Ghosts by a lady called Sandra Lawrence, who has, who has found what may be the holy grail of gardening history in an enormous unseen archive of Miss Wilmot's life from Spetchley Park near Worcester. So along with the archivist at Spetchley Park, Sandra Lawrence has been going through this archive for the last goodness knows how long. And as a historian who, I mean, I've been researching history for a long time and you know, really you're going over documents that people have looked at before and it's, it's hard to find new evidence a lot of the time, particularly in garden history. But this archive is just new and exciting and it was in the basement of Spetchley Park and no one's seen it. So uh, Sandra Lawrence has spent all of this time piecing together Miss Wilmot's life and what may have happened to her. And it's just absolutely incredible. So one of the abiding stories of Ellen Wilmot is that she was awarded the Victoria Medal of Honour from the RHS in 1897. And this was an enormous honour because it was the first year that the Victoria Medal of Honour was bestowed. There were 60 medals given out that year in honour of 60 years of Queen Victoria being on the throne. So the RHS, to mark this, decided to set up the Victoria Medal of Honour, give out 60 medals. And within that group of 60 lucky recipients, there were only two women one of which was Gertrude Jekyll, the famous plantswoman, and one of which was Ellen Wilmot. But sadly, Ellen Wilmot did not turn up to collect her prize. So this is one of those things that's gone down in history as one of the reasons why Ellen Wilmot was a very difficult woman, that she couldn't even be bothered to turn up to receive this prize. But actually, Sandra Lawrence, from looking at her archive, has come up with an alternative spin on this, an explanation which is actually a little bit heartbreaking. So... She posits that actually Ellen Wilmot seems to have been in quite a passionate relationship with a lady called Georgiana Tofnell, who was um, lady-in-waiting to Princess Mary Adelaide. So they had a relationship for a number of years, but unfortunately, Princess Mary Adelaide became very ill and Georgiana kind of saw which way the wind was blowing and all of a sudden was in a surprise move engaged to a man. So this wedding was planned for the 27th of October, 
1897, which was the day after Ellen was due to receive the Victoria Medal of Honour. So at that time, unfortunately, Ellen had fled to her house in France. Was she in solace because she was heartbroken? Did she just not fancy turning up? Did she just fancy being in France? We will never know, but I think it does place an alternative spin, doesn't it, on why she might not have turned up to receive one of the greatest honours of her life. It's an important story, I think, because firstly, it doesn't take a lot to be seen as a difficult woman in history. Ellen Wilmot was seen as being entirely eccentric because she did wild things like gardening, traveling without a man, smoking, exercising. She didn't marry. And all of those things were seen as being, you know, slightly deviant. So I think we have to put an alternative spin on this now and think actually, who was Ellen Wilmot? I mean, she was certainly eccentric. She carried a knuckle duster, but you know, why wouldn't you if you were a lady walking unescorted around London? We do know also that she carried a revolver to RHS council meetings sometimes, which does seem a little extreme. But I think we do need to understand Ellen Wilmot in the context that she was. And I think Sandra Lawrence notices in the archive that actually she does seem to become a slightly different person after that, after the awful date in 1897. And I think if you, if you are in that situation and you cannot be true to yourself and you have been heartbroken and you can't tell anyone about it because the person that you were in that relationship is the only person in the world with which you can share that knowledge. That has to do things to you that that are really difficult. And I think the fact that she did go on, if this did happen and this was the case and she did go on and she made that success of her life and financed all the expeditions and became such an eminent horticulturist, I think we have to, you know, we have to really honour her for the amazing woman that she was and to just shine that light on people in the past who have not really had the understanding that they deserve and that's so important. Big thanks to Sue. I'm very pleased the RHS is having these conversations now. It's as if there's a great gap in our garden history that's been ignored and overlooked for so long, and it's time to put it right. If you'd like to read more about Ellen Wilmot and other LGBTQ plus horticulturalists of the past, check out the February cover story for The Garden magazine. You can read the story in the RHS The Garden app, and you can find info on Sandra Lawrence's book, Miss Wilmot's Ghosts, in our show notes as well. Before we go, I wanted to share a few things I've been up to in the garden this week. Evergreen pruning has been very much on my mind as I cut back my hollies and rhododendrons that have got overgrown. And also repotting. I like to repot permanent plants like shrubs and trees every couple of years. And I'm also starting a little early sowing of things like broad beans and cauliflowers in the greenhouse in my heated propagator. And also it's time to empty my compost bins. They've been fermenting nicely over winter. and I've got wheelbarrow loads of compost to go out and spread over the ground to feed the plants this year and keep the weeds from taking over. And finally, we'd love to hear more from you. If you're having issues in your garden or you have general horticultural questions you'd like addressed on the show, send us your queries at podcasts at rhs.org.uk. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening.
I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.